0: This is Sunrise, the who, what, when, where, why, and WTF of Florida politics. I'm Rick Flagg reporting from Tallahassee, where there are now 6,741 confirmed cases of coronavirus in the Sunshine State, including 85 fatalities. It's a new month, and the April Fool's joke is that all the monthly bills are due, which is not easy if you're one of the people laid off because of the pandemic. Senator Marco Rubio says there is money in that $2 trillion coronavirus stimulus package for small businesses and nonprofits. All that money in the federal stimulus package is a tempting target for scammers as well. Attorney General Ashley Moody says they're already trying to trick people out of money that hasn't even arrived. The new month also means new worries over evictions. The Florida Supreme Court has suspended the legal process for filing eviction papers until the middle of the month. But some Democrats in the legislature say that is not enough time. They want the governor to declare a moratorium on evictions until the pandemic is done. On the Sunrise interview, you'll hear from an FSU professor about the mental health impact of isolation on seniors. Dr. Don Carr also has some tips about how you can stay in touch with grandma and grandpa without putting their lives at risk. A big win for former felons trying to have their voting rights restored in Florida. A federal appeals court in Atlanta is refusing to reconsider or overturn a decision that says the state cannot refuse their right to vote if the ex-inmates cannot pay all their legal fines and restitution. The Public Service Commission approves a new area code for Tampa because 813 is just about played out, but we still don't know what the new number will be. We'll also have your daily calendar of political events and get the latest on Florida Man, who sometimes wears a badge. And now the top stories on Sunrise for Wednesday, April 1st. Well, you knew this was bound to happen. Three members of the Florida Highway Patrol stationed in Miami, Lake Worth and Panama City have tested positive for coronavirus. The facilities where they work have been decontaminated and people who they may have been in contact with are being notified about their potential exposure. Officials at the Department of Corrections, meanwhile, have a dozen confirmed cases among prison employees. But as of now, they say there are no confirmed cases within the inmate population if you've driven anywhere lately you've probably enjoyed the absence of traffic and the governor says there's an opportunity here now that the roads are clear Ron DeSantis says this would be a great time to do the sort of repair jobs that usually foul up the traffic flow
1: you you notice how the state is quiet i mean you look at the roads there's just not a lot not a lot going on right now and um, you know that's understandable Uh, but given that given that there's the traffic is down and everything um, you know i'm going to be looking at um, accelerating some of these infrastructure projects because uh, when you're doing those on busy roads, it causes a lot of problems. Well, when those roads are no longer busy, if that's going to be the case for the next month, then we're going to need to um, uh, th- then we're going to need to make use of that time. Now is a golden time. If we're going to be, you know, kind of in a down state for the next two to four weeks or whatever, however long the guidelines go for, that is um, that is the perfect time to really accelerate on some of these busy roads. There's not going to be any traffic jams. So we're going to identify some projects and hopefully be able to make a big difference.
0: DeSantis says he'll be announcing specific infrastructure projects today. Some Democrats in the legislature are asking the GOV to impose a moratorium on evictions because of the coronavirus pandemic. Representative Chevron Jones of West Park says Florida was already facing an affordable housing crisis before COVID-19. And hundreds of thousands of people who were laid off as the virus spread are now trying to figure out how to pay their rent.
2: We cannot continue to piecemeal the helpful Floridians. We know right now that there is a need, and we know for a fact that we have to protect the Floridians who live here within the state of Florida, starting off uh, with uh, the ensuring that people have a roof over their heads. The average Floridian, they are confused, they're scared, and it's our job as leaders, to tell the people the truth and communicate their rights and protections to them as it stands right now. Governor DeSantis has one job, and that one job is to protect Floridians, not based off the decisions of poll numbers or what the large corporations are telling him, but protect people is the main objective. Truth be told, that we know that people are dying. We don't make the timeline. The virus makes the timeline. What we're asking for is for the governor to protect the people of Florida, starting at the top, and that is the roof over their heads.
0: The Florida Supreme Court has already issued an order that shuts down the eviction process through April 17th, but State Senator Oscar Brainerd of Miami Gardens says that is not enough time.
1: We have to think about this from a longer-term perspective. we got to assume that this is going to happen for a while. And if you look at some of the other states, they put in place eviction moratoriums, until the end of the crisis. And I think that's what we're asking for, until the end of the crisis. Our solutions that we come up with should not have a timetable on it because this crisis does not have a timetable. Look, if you're closing businesses, if schools are closed so people can't go to work because they have nowhere for their children to go to, then how can they go to earn rent? Even in the bill that was passed by the uh, Federal Congress, uh, the stimulus package, landlords can seek relief for their mortgages So this doesn't even so we're even saying that there's a whole uh, level of people that can get relief. Let's make sure that the bottom person, the person that has to pay the rent, has that same relief.
0: Representative Anna Escamani of Orlando says renters should be protected from eviction. In fact, she says some of the landlords are taking advantage of the crisis to get rid of longtime tenants and raise their rents.
3: I've gotten emails from constituents whose landlords have not only emphasized to them that there will be no delay in payment, they must pay on time but also hearing that some landlords are increasing rent, Some landlords are actually um, asking for renewals in April that lead to uh, having this tenant to leave. I mean, there's not even any type of guidance or recommendation to landlords to be decent human beings right now. And so it's, it's incredibly dangerous for us not to address this. Not only could we potentially see more and more Americans financially strained, uh, but we could see Americans become homeless. We could see the public health crisis become worse because folks cannot shelter in place because they don't have a place. And so it's critically important that we take action now, that the governor uh, put into place a statewide freeze on evictions.
0: Eskimani says this wouldn't be so bad if the state had a decent unemployment system that paid enough to cover basic necessities. But Florida's benefits are so low that unemployment won't even cover the rent, let alone food or utilities. Florida Senator Marco Rubio gets a shout out from state and national groups that represent the restaurant industry. You see, small businesses and nonprofit groups were not included in the original version of the $2 trillion coronavirus stimulus package until Rubio and a handful of his colleagues went to work on the bill.
4: Uh, You know, about six or eight weeks ago, uh, a great partnership with Chairwoman Velasquez in the House, my Democratic uh, counterpart in the Senate, Ben Cardin of Maryland, and then later on, Susan Collins of Maine and Jean Shaheen of New Hampshire, we got together and began to craft a way to help small businesses, knowing that if we were going to have quarantines and close downs here in the US, small businesses are going to be deeply impacted. And of course, over the last few weeks, this uh, has developed in a way where our plan had to get much bigger. But the reason we were able to move so quickly is that we've been working on it in a bipartisan way for quite a while now. Here's the outlines of the plan. It's pretty straightforward. We wanted to make it simple. Small businesses that qualify under the SBA criteria or 500 employees or less along with not-for-profits, 501 c 3s under 500, and uh, and now independent workers, 1099 people that work in the gig economy. You will go to a lender. There's over 800 lenders already that can start right away doing this. You will go to a private lender, and all you have to do is verify the existence of the company and verify your payroll. And they will qualify for 250% of their monthly, of their monthly payroll. They will get this money, and as long as they spend it on payroll, rent, lease, mortgage, or utilities, related expenses like that, they will not have to pay it back. 100% forgivable. Banks should be able to start right away. Banks should be participating in this. You're going to get paid a fee. There's no underwriting. It's fully guaranteed. You have a guaranteed buyer for this instrument. And um, and it's not going to take very long. All you have to do is verify payroll and the existence of the company. Ideally, small businesses would be going to their own bank who could quickly verify payroll by just looking at their account. We think this is going to help a lot of people. And I am grateful to all of you for putting the word out about how this program works, who, connecting banks and lenders to small businesses and vice versa, and putting in place all of the elements to make this successful. But I cannot thank all of you enough for focusing on this, putting the word out about this, because our biggest challenge now is letting small businesses know that this exists and how it works. And our hope here is to protect the paychecks of millions of Americans during this very difficult and unusual time.
0: The federal stimulus package has attracted attention from a lot of people, including scam artists. Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody says they're already trying to rip people off before the money even arrives.
3: Congress recently passed a historic $2 trillion economic rescue bill to help us during this time of crisis. The bill includes individual payments, expanded unemployment coverage, student loan changes, and much more. Anytime the government provides benefits, scammers swarm like sharks in a feeding frenzy, trying to steal payments before they can be distributed. Sadly, even before the stimulus package passed, scammers began sending text messages to people claiming they could receive benefits by clicking on a link. That link most likely contained malware. Please know that the IRS will not initiate contact with tax filers by email, text messages, or social media to request personal or financial information. To guard against these types of stimulus payment scams, never respond to text messages, emails, or ads directing you to click on a link. Never provide personal or financial information in response to an unsolicited message. Never trust caller ID displays claiming a call is from the IRS as spoofing technology allows scammers to change phone displays and to impersonate government agencies. And finally, never take advance payment in order to secure or expedite access to a benefit. You can also guard against scams by educating yourself about the stimulus package now, so you are better prepared to spot fraud tactics designed to exploit the news.
0: During this pandemic, we're all being told to isolate ourselves and maintain social distancing to stay healthy. But frankly, that can mess with your mental health, especially for seniors. Next up on the Sunrise interview, we'll talk with Dr. Don Carr from Florida State University, who has been researching the psychology of isolation. This is Sunrise from Florida Politics. We're speaking today with Dr. Don Carr. She's an associate professor of sociology at the Pepper Institute on Aging and Public Policy at Florida State University. They spent a lot of time looking at issues of the elderly. And the elderly, of course, are the center of our attention during this pandemic with COVID-19. Uh, Dr. Carr, what's going on with, with the seniors out there now that they suddenly have to isolate themselves? They're not supposed to have the grandkids come by. They're not supposed to visit the neighbors that much. What happens in that sort of situation?
5: Yeah, so um, if, if if older adults are... Um, heeding the warnings of experts, and I hope that they are, they're staying in their homes and they're not doing uh, very much to leave and and place themselves at at risk of being exposed to the virus. Um, So what that means is that many of them are staying in their homes and they're not getting a lot of the social engagement that they normally get on a day-to-day basis. They're being encouraged to avoid any um, kind of Uh, visits to the grocery store or, you know, even basic everyday interactions, but also more meaningful engagement or activities that they might have, like a club or a uh, volunteering or other types of regular activities that they might engage in. Um, And so that means that they're having to think about different strategies for, um, for making sure that they're staying socially connected with other people. And probably one of the you know the most important thing I think we we really need to be thinking about is acknowledging that our social health is a critical component of our well-being. Um, we often think about our physical health and maintaining our physical health or even our cognitive health. But our social health is equally important, and during this time, it's even more, Um, critical that we take seriously our ability to remain socially connected with others. Older adults are at unique risks, I think, in this case, because even though um, many of them um, are are healthy, in fact, the majority of older adults um, who are living in the community are quite healthy and capable of taking care of themselves, um, they might be at risk of... um, for those who do need some care, might not be getting some of the care that they need. And so that's first something that I I think we need to be paying attention to is making sure we're keeping track of those older adults who need care um, and making sure their care needs are being met in some way. Um, But for those who are healthy, I think there are a lot of opportunities for for them. What I would say this... might be worth uh, especially looking into is some of the ways that older adults can uh, maintain relationships with their family members, um, in particular, and their friends who live in the community. Uh, Many older adults, unlike younger adults, don't use the same kinds of technologies that we're relying on right now. Um, So some of these video conferencing technologies have been really useful, I think, for younger adults to keep connected to their friends and other people in their communities, not just maintaining their sort of ability to, to work. But older adults oftentimes, or many of them don't have the same comfort level with the tech- these kinds of technologies. And that makes them more at risk potentially for not being able to maintain social connections. Um, but I think this could be an opportunity for older people who aren't comfortable with these kinds of technologies to embrace, um, uh, kind of taking on the task of learning how to use the computer for these kinds of capacities, whether using a cell phone or an iPhone, uh, an iPad rather, or a tablet of some kind to to be able to um, reach out to family members and connect. So um, personally as, as a parent, I've got kids at home, and there are lots of um, times that my kids are here that normally they wouldn't be available to speak with their grandparents, and this is a wonderful opportunity for them to have more meaningful engagement with their family members. So I think um, one thing we can do is try to use this as an opportunity to, to prioritize our social health and kind of dig into our social relationships in the limited ways that we can. Um, and technology might be a useful way to do that. Um, and and I I think that there's room for for us to... See whether we can set up systems so that this should this continue um, that we can we can keep older adults engaged in, in socially engaging ways in their families as much as possible.
0: So it sounds like maybe one of the partial solutions on this is to get grandma and grandpa a portal or something of that nature.
5: Yeah, it might be the case. Um, I think we you know I don't know what's going to happen in terms of our sort of internet. Uh, capacities, you know, with so many people online all day, uh, so far I haven't seen any massive negative consequences, right? you know, knock on wood that we are able to stay connected, but suddenly the, the internet has become even more critical, um, for our lives because of the need for sort of connecting through video conferencing and so forth that's going on now. Um, and many older people, I think, either don't have internet connection, and I think that could be a, a barrier to this, but the ones who do oftentimes haven't, just haven't explored this type of technology before. So um, I think this is an, an opportunity for older adults who have internet access, who have, you know, sort of devices that allow it to, to spend some time learning and being able to say, okay, here's a great opportunity for me to to help out my children by by spending time online with my grandchildren and engaging with them and seeing how I can be engaged if they're not living in the community. So even even ones who live down the street from one another, you know, it's probably best that they're not personally exposed to their grandchildren, but they could be on the phone all day or, or several, uh, you know, several times throughout the day um, interacting with their family members so they don't feel alone.
0: Okay, I think I'm good. Is there something you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to say?
5: Um, you know, I don't know if it's useful for for us to sort of acknowledge that if we don't uh, maintain those social relationships, that there are some really important health consequences that we know exist. And uh, just taking seriously the opportunity to, you know, we're, we're in our homes during this time and we are physically alone, but that doesn't mean we can't and shouldn't be as connected as we can with those around us. Um, if we don't, I, I have real concerns about about the cumulative effects of these the social isolation on our psycho- psychological and physical health. So the only thing I would, would say is that we need to take this seriously. This isn't a, you know, it, it might be a, a brief moment in time, but what we need to take seriously, the, the uh, importance of maintaining our relationships. And this is a good opportunity for us to sort of think about who it is um, that we can connect with, and and make sure that we're we're really doing this at, at a sort of more community-oriented perspective, at, instead of an individual um, perspective of being being alone or isolated.
0: Terrific! Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Carr.
5: It is my pleasure. Thanks so much.
0: In non-coronavirus news, there's been another legal setback for the governor. A federal appeals court in Atlanta is refusing his request to reconsider a ruling that felons who have served their time but still are unable to pay their court fees and victim restitution must still be allowed to vote. Back in October, U.S. District Judge Robert Hinkle issued an injunction saying the state cannot bar former felons from voting if they are genuinely unable to pay those obligations. That decision was upheld by a three-judge panel at the 11th Circuit in Atlanta back in February. The governor appealed, asking all the judges who serve on the appeals court to reconsider the case. That request has now been denied. That decision intensifies pressure on the DeSantis administration. Judge Hinkle has already ordered the state to come up with a process to determine whether felons are able to pay their financial obligations. And if the state won't fix it, the judge says he will. The Public Service Commission approves a new area code for Tampa because phone companies are running out of numbers in the 813. The PSC approved a plan described as consumer-friendly because current phone customers will not have to change their number or take the new area code. However, all local calls in the area will ultimately require 10-digit dialing. The North American Numbering Plan Administrator has not selected the new area code, but once it's in place, Tampa shouldn't need another one for about 37 years. Your calendar of events. It starts with a state board of education meeting and conference call beginning at 9. It's their first meeting since the state canceled classes and switched to virtual instruction because of the pandemic. The Florida Commission on Offender Review meets by conference call at 9 o'clock, and the State Reemployment Assistance Appeals Commission is scheduled to meet at 9 30. Finally, it's time once again for the continuing adventures of Florida Man, who is sometimes inspired by Netflix. A Florida man who is the chief law enforcement officer in Hillsborough County is hoping a new miniseries will help solve a 23 year old mystery. The Netflix series Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem and Madness tells the story of an Oklahoma zookeeper by the name of Joseph Exotic and the events that led him to plan a murder for hire plot against animal rights activist Carol Baskin of Tampa. Now, Baskin's multimillionaire husband, Don Lewis, disappeared in 1997. The case has never been solved. So Hillsborough County Sheriff Chad Cronister is taking advantage of the show's popularity to ask for new leads in Lewis's disappearance. That Netflix series includes rumors that Baskin was involved in her husband's disappearance, which she denies. And a Florida man is warning you to beware of bogus coronavirus stimulus checks. Thomas Andrews of Brooksville received what appeared to be a coronavirus bailout check in the amount of $3,344.68. In reality, it was nothing but a carefully disguised sales gimmick for an auto dealership trying to lure people to an automotive tent sale. The dealer never did list his name, but they called their tent a relief headquarters.